Stories are important, especially those we first encounter when we were young and in our formative years. I caught my first glimpse of Princess Mononoke when I was very young, and I only saw a fragmented splatter of scenes due to catching it halfway through its runtime. It stuck itself in my brain as this weird, visceral enigma that was equal parts fascinating and frightening. A few years later, I would watch the movie in full on DVD, and it's been my favorite movie ever since. When I saw that it would be shown again in theaters for its 20th anniversary, when I saw that I would finally have the chance to watch it in its entirety on the big screen, I fell to my knees and cried tears of joy. In case I haven't made it clear, I love this movie very, very dearly. For a lot of reasons, more than I could hope to list in a single sitting. But we have to start somewhere. First, I implore you, if you haven't seen this movie, do yourself the service of watching it. If I haven't conveyed it yet, I wish dearly to be in your shoes and have the chance to experience the film for the first time once more. This won't be a comprehensive examination of the entire movie. We'll only be covering up until about the halfway mark of the film's runtime, and we won't be covering everything up until that point. So please, don't sell for this if you've never touched Princess Mononoke before. With that out of the way, let's begin. Princess Mononoke starts with its most renowned feature, incredibly stunning art. The movie opens with absolutely gorgeous shots of windswept Japanese countryside, followed by shots of a young man riding on the back of a large elk, which immediately demonstrates the movie's second strong suit. It's well-animated animals. For anyone who hasn't tried their hand at art, drawing animals, let alone animating them, is a particularly difficult step in an artist's development. And it's a precious rarity when we're gifted with animals that are animated with this level of velvety, smooth motion. The plot kicks off soon after, with the young man approaching a group of young girls to warn them of the imminent danger in the area. He then rides off and meets an old man in a watchtower, and the two survey the forest for signs of this mysterious threat. <clears throat> now, we see the movie's third strength on display, silence. Hayao Miyazaki, the director behind Studio Ghibli's work, including Princess Mononoke, has stated in several interviews that he finds constant action tedious and boring in film. For high-paced action to truly stand out, it must walk hand-in-hand hand with times of quiet peace, according to Miyazaki. And the man has proven it time and again. The moments that pass in the watchtower are paralyzingly tense, the result of a brooding musical score backing a sudden shift from the bright colors of the intro sequence to the darker shades of the forest as our protagonist, Prince Ashitaka, searches for danger. The following scene with the demon Nago emerging from the woods is still one of the most unnerving monster reveals in cinema. The expectation, as Ashitaka peers deep into the woods, is that the stone wall the camera focuses on will explode suddenly and violently. Instead, the horrible blackish-purple ooze that leaks off of Nago's body congeals over its cracks, and the beast crawls over it, crushing it underfoot and revealing the full horror of his body. 
a conglomeration of horrible slug-like worms with two ominous red eyes glaring from beneath their mass. As he walks, his legs form out of the worms, drag his body forward, then fade back into their writhing numbers. Plant life crumbles and dies just from being in his vicinity, and the monster drags death with him in his every step. Nago isn't a startling horror. Some may not find him scary at all. Nago may only occupy a few minutes of screen time, but to me, he's still a perfectly executed piece of dreadful horror. Everything from his design, to the musical score that backs his appearance, to the way characters react just to the threat of his touch, all convey a wrongness and corruption that still fills his scene with tension, even after all these years. Ashitaka slays Nago, who turns out to be a giant boar, but his arm is firmly ensnared by the demon's worms first, leaving him cursed by the boar god's unbridled hatred for humanity. Within Nago's corpse, Ashitaka's elders find a musket ball, something none of them can identify, and send Ashitaka on a quest to discover what this mysterious thing is, and why it filled the massive boar Nago with so much hate that he turned into a demon. He's sent to the east, where Nago came from, to observe what's happening there, quote, with eyes unclouded by hate. And here we have our inciting incident, our premise, and we move on into the rest of the narrative. It's here that I'll surmise some of the plot points much more succinctly than they deserve, for the purpose of expediency. We first see more Studio Ghibli flexing on everyone who can't draw mountains with some absolutely beautiful shots of the untamed wilderness as Ashitaka travels on his journey. While they may seem mundane, these scenes serve three purposes. They present us with more beautiful art, they provide a calm after the action of Nago's attack, and they serve to drive home just how far Ashitaka has to travel from home for his quest. Ashitaka stumbles on a village under attack and intervenes in the massacre saving several people's lives by killing the samurai assaulting them. He then makes contact with an old monk who clearly knows more about the iron musket ball than he lets on, and the two have a very depressing conversation about tragedy in the world when Ashitaka reveals what he'd done. We then cut to a set of characters yet unrelated to Ashitaka. A caravan of bulls carrying goods are led by a group of men, led by a noblewoman, along a mountain path when a trio of massive wolves attack, killing scores of men before their matriarch takes a bullet to the chest and falls from a cliff. Soon after, Ashitaka comes upon the wolves at a river as a young woman sucks the filthy blood from the matriarch's wound. They take notice of him, and when he asks if he's close to the land he seeks, they curtly tell him to leave and disembark from the river. This young woman is San, the eponymous Princess Mononoke, or Monster Princess. Ashitaka then stumbles onto two survivors of the wolf attack and takes them with him. A swarm of tiny, adorable sprites appear to lead them safely through their forest, and the trio arrive at Irontown, the home of the two men. While treated with suspicion at first, Ashitaka is ultimately welcomed as a hero for bringing the two men home and saving their lives. The men of the town explained that they used to be unsuccessful miners due to the forest over all of the richest iron deposits 
being full of powerful animal gods. Then the noblewoman, Lady Eboshi, appeared and used her guns to clear the beasts of the forest and allowed the town to thrive in the business of mining and smelting iron. Ashitaka's cursed arm flexes and twitches as he realizes it was this Lady Eboshi that was responsible for Nago's hate and death. <clears throat> On his way to confront Lady Eboshi, Ashitaka is invited by the women of the town to come see how the massive bellows of the smelter work. The machinery is quite impressive and operated by a massive board that is pushed down upon by two rows of women, one on each side, with each push driving a fresh burst of air into the fire. Ashitaka takes up a spot on the line to help, and while they work, the girls talk about their lives, having been prostitutes in an unnamed big city, until Eboshi brought, bought out their contracts and brought them to Irontown so they could live their own lives. As a result, Irontown is very matriarchal, and the women adore Lady Eboshi for what she's given them. This is important, as it's our first hint that Eboshi is more than a generic villain. To some extent, her motives and operations are altruistic, at least to some people. After leaving the smelter, Ashitaka finally confronts Lady Eboshi, the woman who shot Nago. And she's not what we expect to see. On the cliffside when she's commanding her men, she's cold and domineering. In the flashbacks of when she first started clearing the forest, she fell scores of beasts with volleys of gunfire and barely emotes at the sight of what she's done. But with Ashitaka, her voice is soft and feathery, even amicable. She addresses him with respect and courtesy as she quietly tallies shipments of iron. However, her cunning nature quickly comes through. It's apparent that she's drilling Ashitaka for information, even if it's subtly at first. When Ashitaka tells her about Nago's curse in his arm, she passively chides the board's memory, treating it as nonchalantly as one with a child's misguided prank instead of a deadly curse that's killing the man in front of her. Ashitaka is so indignantly enraged by this that his cursed arm spasms, and if not for his great restraint, would have struck her dead. When he tells her that he didn't come to kill her, and admits that even if he did, it wouldn't stop Irontown from killing the beasts of the forest, and reveals that he came to observe with eyes unclouded by hate, she laughs in his face, and she considers the idea foolish. However, she humors him, and offers to show him her greatest treasure. So, to recap the points relevant to our discussion now, Irontown presents a fairly complex moral situation at this point. The beasts of the forest, like Nago, refuse to leave their home to let humans like Lady Eboshi cut down their trees and dig up the iron in the ground beneath. However, the humans aren't a greedy, organized corporation, as a story like this would stereotypically portray. They're people. They're struggling to survive in the only way that's available to them. If not for Lady Eboshi and her ironworks, the women of Irontown would have to go back to the atrocious conditions of the city's brothels, and the men would be left destitute and without a home. The situation isn't as simply resolved as driving out the iron workers and calling it a good day. On top of that, the rage of both sides of this conflict is blind. The beasts like Nago despise all of humanity for what Irontown has done to them, and certain citizens of Irontown hate the beasts, especially the wolves, for killing their loved ones in raids like the one on the mountainside. It is here 
that things get even more complicated. Deep within her compound, Lady Eboshi reveals her greatest treasure to Ashitaka. Inside a brightly lit room in the heart of her compound, Eboshi introduces him to a team of gunsmiths, the tinkerers that make her guns. They're all wrapped up in bandages. Most are missing hands or feet. Some are even missing eyes. One poor soul in the corner of the room gives a tearful speech about how much he adores Eboshi for saving him from dying in the city. His only regret is that his leprosy has left him debilitated and he can no longer serve her to his fullest. The man is so heartbroken over not being useful to Eboshi that he quietly sobs, soaking the bandages that cover his head in tears. All of the gunsmiths are lepers, and like the women, Eboshi saved them from the mistreatment they suffered in the city. If not for her, each one of these men and women would be dead. Eboshi finds... Nuli reveals her true plan. The Emperor of Japan has hired hunters to come and kill the great forest spirit, a god above gods in the forest, a spirit with power over life and death. He hopes that the legends surrounding it are true and that with its blood he can live forever. Eboshi plans on hunting the god for the Emperor, only to steal its mystical blood in the hopes that it can heal her lepers, alleviating their affliction. Should the lepers, the women, and the men of Irontown be left to their accursed fates as an acceptable consequence of stopping Lady Eboshi? Should the great forest spirit's life be laid down, killing the forest he presides over and every beast within to heal Irontown's lepers? There's a lot I love about this movie, but if I had to order them all into a list, this would certainly be at the top. Some stories with a green Aesop, a lesson about respecting nature and not abusing it, will typically drive the point home with a straw man villain that blindly pursues the destruction of nature for nebulous, blind greed. And such isn't the case here. Princess Mononoke presents the struggle for environmentalism in the most realistic light I've ever seen. While nature good, metal bad is easy to digest, the real problem is not. No problem is truly solved by simply ripping out the people in the system that are most responsible for it. This does nothing to resolve the conflict that brought those people to this point. If Ashitaka did strike down Lady Eboshi on their first meeting, Irontown wouldn't go anywhere. The people there still need to make a living, and other warlords would be more than willing to come fill the vacuum left by Eboshi. Even if Irontown were to somehow be raised to the ground and completely annihilated, the resource they came for, the iron, would still be valuable and would still draw destruction to the forest. So what is the solution to this situation? How is the forest kept safe while providing for the people of Irontown? That's the question looming over Ashitaka's head as San and her wolves lead an attack directly on Irontown. But the rest of the story is for another time. Art means a lot of things to a lot of different people. For some, art is just... Anything meant to be artsy. For most, art is something meant to evoke emotion from the person beholding it. For others still, art is meant to ask questions, to present a genuinely difficult quandary to the viewer. Few succeed in this endeavor. Princess Monoki succeeds, and it succeeds wildly. <laughs>